good day to you, whoever you are listening to this. Welcome once again to the Barrage of Butchery and Den of Disgrace with a new episode of the Nasty Pasty Podcast. I'm your esteemed guide, Andy Roberts, and if you're anything like me, you get irritated at the utter scorn and dismissiveness of the horror genre. Not so much today, of course, but it used to be quite commonplace for casual movie fans to snub horror buffs as being perverts who were weird or sick for liking such graphic material. Thankfully, we live in a much more open world now, but in Britain's glorious past, our government were part of the whole classist problem of categorising horror fans as useless bilge that needed reining in. I'm of course talking about the infamous Video Nasties Panic of the 80s, where a selection of horror films were plucked from the shelves, all in the name of protecting the children. But in reality, it was a way of telling the lumpen proletariat at the Manchester factories that they were too stupid to notice the intricate working of horror films, and would instead just goofily reenact the violence that they saw on the screen. Fortunately, we're not so stupid, and we realise now in retrospect that the whole country was scammed into believing something false, all seemingly in the name of doing something beneficial. And depressingly, we haven't really changed as a nation based on recent events. As someone who came late to the party, being only born in 1991, I discovered the whole saga online, and I immediately went out of my way to find the nasties and watch them to see what the fuss was about. Obviously, I found it rather funny that such a thing happened, which is probably not what the countless victims of police raids were feeling when they not only had their property seized, but they went to jail or received heavy fines, which is the true travesty of the several-year-long ordeal. I decided to look at films from the same era, and I began to question why the video nasties were chosen, when there were others similar in tone, and some even worse that didn't get chosen. This podcast is the product of that desire, so I look at a bunch of horrors from the same time frame, and I find links to the nasties, I hypothesise about why certain films were chosen, or I wonder whether the film I'm actually talking about was seized by the police after all. As their performance was so random, it's entirely plausible that many others were seized, but just unofficially. Today, we're carrying on the theme of children in horror films, graduating on from our supernatural kids of last week to the more unsavoury child cults theme. Now, these sorts of films are more inspired by William Golding's Lord of the Flies rather than any real-life cults, which don't tend to feature exclusive child members. Even the most infamous factual examples of children in cults, like the horrific Children of God cult, it still has majority adult members, so the exclusively child-filled group of crazies seems to be something that's relegated purely to horror movies. The two films that we have today are 1984's Children of the Corn and 1989's Beware Children at Play. So let's waste no further time and get into our first example, Children of the Corn.
In the small town of Gatlin in Nebraska, a corn drought is concerning the whole town when a child called Isaac leads a small group of kids to a cafe. Suddenly, the adults who are eating begin to choke on their beverages, having been poisoned. Any others that are still alive are slaughtered by the children, who butcher them using sickles and cleavers. Three years later, couple Vicky and Bert awaken to celebrate Bert's birthday, where they talk about an upcoming trip they have to take in which Bert is about to take an internship as a doctor. In Gatlin, three kids, Joseph, Job and Sarah, discuss Isaac, who apparently refuses to let them do anything, leading to Joseph planning to escaping the town. He flees through the vast cornfields surrounding the town whilst promising to come back to get the other two. As he gets closer to escape, Joseph hears some strange noises nearby and is suddenly slashed by a mysterious figure. As Bert and Vicky consult the map while driving, he fails to notice Joseph in the middle of the road and accidentally mows him down. Looking at the body, Bert notices that he had fatal wounds before the collision and investigates the nearby cornfield, finding blood spatters and a suitcase. Sarah and Job seem to eschew the rest of the children in Gatlin and they play games while alone, only to incur the wrath of an older kid called Malachi, who takes them to Isaac for punishment. Isaac discovers that Sarah has been drawing pictures of events to come and excitedly declares that she has a gift. Malachi reveals that he spotted Bert's car already, prompting Isaac to send him to silence the old man. Malachi is instead irked by the fact that Sarah and Job are receiving no punishment, with Isaac retorting that he follows only his will, something that's only known as he who walks behind the rose. Bert stops at a mechanic's gas stop and asks to use the phone, but the old man is purposefully unhelpful, seemingly aware of what goes on in Gatlin. Shortly after the pair leave, the mechanic is harassed by strange sounds and cries out that he hasn't told them anything. But shortly after, Malachi appears with several other children holding knives and sickles, attacking and killing the mechanic. Bert and Vicky are unable to leave Gatlin due to very confusing street signage, and they resolve to explore the town, while Isaac gives a sermon in the cornfields to his flock of children, explaining that he who walks behind the rose visited him in dreams and informed him of Joseph's betrayal, and the arrival of Vicky and Bert, who will be sacrificed due to being non-believers. The pair, meanwhile, arrive in the empty streets and go into a cafe to use the phone, only to find countless discarded corn husks. Driving around again, they find a house with Sarah inside, and they learn about Isaac, who they assume is just an adult. Bert leaves to check the rest of the town for any grown-ups, finding the school and the town hall abandoned, and in disarray. Back at the house, Sarah draws a picture of Vicky, just as a gang of kids led by Malachi storm the house and kidnap Vicky to be sacrificed in the cornfields. Isaac, however, is angry with Malachi for killing the old man, seemingly because he was providing them with invaluable gas to use as fuel, declaring that he who walks behind the rose is similarly displeased. Bert discovers what's happened to his girlfriend and searches the cornfields, which seem to supernaturally part for him. Vicky is strung up on a corn crucifix, just as Bert interrupts a ceremony at the church where a 19-year-old Amos is to be sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose by a girl called Rachel due to him reaching adulthood. Bert is stabbed but manages to escape the church, pursued by Malachi and his goons, until Job helps him hide. Back at the cornfields, Malachi tires of Isaac's methods and attacks him, declaring that he can now fulfil the deity's will and has Vicky cut down from the crucifix to be replaced by Isaac. Isaac screams that they will all suffer for this transgression, as only he can interpret his laws. 
Using Vicky to bait Bert into the open, Malachi starts the ritual to have Amos and Isaac sacrificed, causing Isaac to be devoured in a strange alien light. In the distraction, Bert rescues Vicky from their clutches and denounces their deity as a false god, before being attacked by Malachi. Fighting him off, Bert walks off while Malachi screams for his flock to kill him. But he's suddenly cut short by the demonic voice of Isaac, who's been revived by he who walks behind the rose, and then punishes Malachi by breaking his neck. The children flee as the deity surrounds the fields with a worsening storm, just as Job reveals that Malachi's first victim was a police officer who had a Bible page on him. Vicky deduces from this that he was killed because he tried to set the corn on fire, which would dispel the false god. Bert heads into the fields to spread gasoline around, only to be attacked by the cornrows themselves. He's saved by Job, and then he successfully releases a torrent of fuel all over the crops, before igniting it with a Molotov cocktail, sending the flames spreading like wildfire, and finally destroying the deity. Heading back to the car, Vicky, Bert, Sarah and Job plan to leave Gatlin together, only for Rachel to appear in the back seat to attack Bert in the car. Vicky goes over quickly and knocks her out with a car door, explaining that they need to go, spurring the group to leave, walking, all the way to Seattle. Behold, a dream did come to me in the night, and the Lord did show all this to me. Praise God! Praise the Lord! A time of tribulation has come. A test is at hand. The final test. What has the Lord commanded? In the dream, the Lord did come to me, and he was a shape. It was he who walks behind the rose. And I did fall on my knees in terror and hide my eyes, lest the fierceness of his face strike me dead. And he told me all that has since happened. He said, Joseph has taken his things and fled this happy place because the worship of me is no more upon him. So take you his life and spill his blood. Like what? Upon the earth. But let not the flesh pollute the corn. Cast him instead upon the road. And so it was done. Joseph the betrayer was cast out. And he who walks behind the rose did say, I will send outlanders amongst you, a man and a woman. And these outlanders will be unbelievers and profaners of the holy. I wish Isaac never came here. But he's always been here, just like he who walks behind the rose. And the man shall sorely test you, for he has great power, even greater than that of the blue man. The blue man! Yes, the blue man! And just as the blue man was offered up unto him, so shall be the unbelievers. Make sacrifice unto him! Bring him the blood of the outlander! Considered quite a classic in the field of horror, Children of the Corn is quite famously based on a short story by the master of horror, Stephen King. The original story was released in the 70s, and it was adapted into the Fritz Kirsch film around 1984. 
there's noticeably quite a difference in the plot of King's story. First of which is that Vicky and Bert are married in the book, going on a mere vacation to California in order to ease their marriage troubles. The old mechanic character is seemingly absent from the novel, as is the introductory scene of Isaac rebelling against the adults, and the characters of Sarah and Job are missing too. Instead, the book focuses solely on Bert and Vicky as the protagonists, and it also weaves a bit more mystery as to Gatlin's strange absence of adults, leaving it around the three-quarter mark before revealing the horrible truth about Gatlin's young. Most of the details of the cult survive in the film adaptation, such as using biblical names, the abundance of corn husks in their religious buildings, and the cornfield representing the worship of he who walks behind the rose. But in rather a stark contrast to the film, Vicky is ultimately sacrificed by the children of Gatlin, and her eyeless, crucified body is found by Bert after he gets lost in the field. Bert is then shockingly killed by he who walks behind the rose himself, personified by a gargantuan creature bearing burning red eyes. The deity then punishes the children by lowering their age limit to 18, requiring that Malachi sacrifice himself to ensure the harvest. The denouement of burning the cornfield only exists as a dream in the novel, that of one of the teenagers, afraid to carry out the plan as the deity knows exactly what they're thinking. So, really, the book is a lot more downbeat and a bit more disturbing. An initial screenplay was written by King for the film, which was probably closer in tone to the original material. But after Hal Roach Studios disliked this version, the script underwent a different treatment from writer George Goldsmith, which focused less on Bert and Vicky as protagonists and introduced the characters of Sarah and Job to explore the cult of Gatlin from an inside perspective. It also added more sequences of violence and action to keep in tone with a more conventional horror film. After these changes were agreed, the film's rights were then sold to New World Pictures, who tried to lessen Goldsmith's contribution and emphasise King's involvement. Filming began in October of 1983, mostly in Iowa, but with several sequences filmed in California too. The shoot went relatively problem-free as well, with actor R.G. Armstrong completing his scenes in just a single day. The large cornfield featured in the film was all real, genuine corn, but for certain action sequences like the corn moving to allow Bert inside, or the climactic fire, some fake models made from polyurethane were used instead. The film also opted not to show He Who Walks Behind the Rose completely, mostly represented by a force moving underground, rather similar to one of the graboids from Tremors. This effect was achieved with a modified wheelbarrow known on set as the Turtle. It basically had wheels added to it so that it could move freely under earth, and a trench was dug out in the ground, aided by enthusiastic Boy Scouts who were around when filming was happening. A layer of tarpaulin and mounds of soil were added on top of the device, and it was simply pulled on cue to show a large moving object beneath the soil. While the film's plot is mostly based on Stephen King's short story, I do feel that some of my analysis will feel a little bit like a critique of the original source, but hey-ho, we'll run with it. The film works, on many levels, though I'd say my biggest issue with the film is the strange structure of the story. Beginning with the massacre sequence, for me, it's a bit of an odd base to start your story from. I'd much have preferred the whole town of Gatlin to be shrouded in mystery when Bert and Vicky arrive, and after certain advances in the plot, that scene of slaughter of the adults would be shown as sort of a flashback. I'm pretty sure this is probably how King would have wanted it, but I guess it does play with the idea that the story is as much Isaac's and the children's, rather than just the adults. What we have in Gatlin is a rather idyllic rural area, whose community is clearly close-knit and religious. 
The idea of farming corn is a real traditional honest living, tending the soil and working the earth to reap food and wealth from raw foodstuffs, which is all fine and dandy, but the children of the corn demonstrates the true danger of when religious or superstitious paranoia begins to infect rational thinking. It's heavily implied that Gatlin suffers a bad drought or some other sort of meteorological event that results in a bad crop of corn. The fact that this is displayed on the church's billboard, nonetheless, really drives home how important the successful harvest is to the community. To that end, the children of Gatlin decide to sacrifice the adults in order to ensure a successful crop, and it seems to succeed. The reason why we'll get into in a moment, but for let's now assume that the children are just blinded by their devotion to their way of life. It all reminds me of a short story called The Lottery from the 40s. In the lottery, there's a town that's very similar to the rustic country location of Gatlin. It talks frequently about an upcoming lottery that's held every year, and the townspeople do so to ensure a successful corn crop that year, with advocates of it chanting, Lottery in June, corn be heavy soon. When a young woman called Tessie is the winner of the lottery, she's lapidated to death by the townsfolk as a sacrifice to purge any bad luck. In essence, King's narrative is very similar, but it has much stronger subtext regarding religion. Like the lottery, Children of the Corn speaks loudly about the power of mob mentality. People who blindly follow dubious behaviours without reason because everyone else is doing it. With children especially, mob mentality is incredibly strong, as they cannot reason as well as adults, and they rely much more on peer approval to feel socially secure. But it's also a double-edged sword. Because children are much more impressionable, they're often prone to changing their minds quite easily, represented mostly in Malachi's character. Because despite devoutly following Isaac's rule, who claims to have communion with the deity himself, Malachi begins to forge his own feelings, whilst still being loyal to he who walks behind the rose. To that end, he instigates a mutiny against Isaac, and the other children follow suit extremely quickly, making the group much more volatile and reactionary than your average demonic cult. The two similar stories also highlight how tradition and superstition is incredibly unpalatable for an outside viewer. To the audience, the actions of the children in the film are completely at odds with what we consider to be normal behaviour, even for religious people. Our stand-ins in the movie are Bert and Vicky, a more traditional couple who have an understanding of religious norms, but are equally horrified at the society that the children have formed. Bert, in a particularly poignant scene, decries their religion as false, because it relies on punishment, cruelty, and selective interpretation of the Bible's passages. The children, unable to see any other way of life, seek out Bert and Vicky, decrying them as outlanders and outsiders who must be sacrificed. Job and Sarah are the only exceptions, simply because Sarah's gift of premonitions allows her to see beyond the pale of Gatlin, allowing her and her brother to just enjoy the simpler things in life, outside of the worship of their deity. The outsider theme is also strengthened by the nature of the characters' origins. The children are clearly country folk, while Bert and Vicky are from the more urbanised surroundings. The film, though, then, then does kind of flip the whole concept on its head by revealing that he who walks behind the rose is actually real. It's not quite what I was expecting, though, if I'm honest, as I was already like, yeah, this is another one of those mad cults who are just completely nuts. When the deity itself does turn up, it throws a lot of the previous subtext out of the boat a little bit. It could be argued that it was indeed the religious fervour of the children, or more specifically Isaac, that has brought the beast to life, because the monster does not appear until Isaac is crucified, rather in a Jesus Christ-inspired tragedy. 
Once he's killed, the monster not only appears and scares the children, who up until this point probably didn't truly believe either, but it also resurrects Isaac in true Good Friday style to wreak his personal vengeance upon his Judas, the snake Malachi. The relationship between He Who Walks Behind the Rose is also interesting and refreshing. I mean, the cornfield is actually his life force, strengthening him with every successful crop, even able to manipulate the corn stalks and move them as he sees fit. He needs a good crop consistently, which requires constant sacrifice, which is why the children have to die at the age of 19. But the importance of the corn is emphasised constantly throughout the film, like corn husks dropped everywhere, the hollowed-out husk being used as a bowl, and even the layers of husks on the floors of the church. The rural nature of corn harvesting has literally become the foundation of their new house of God, which is why the act of immolating the entire field is so vital to the deity being destroyed. Without it, there's no pastoral activity to do, no link to the belief in him, and no society either. It's a pretty fascinating film, mainly because it was probably one of the first to show child cults in such a way. It's aged quite a bit by now, especially as some of the tropes in it feel a little cliché, especially the Bible Belt pronunciation of Isaac's character. The violence, too, is quite strong, but it's easily overmatched by loads of things before and since. But the film's iconic narrative and the portrayal of mad kids does leave this classic ripe for rediscovery by a whole new generation. Bert was played by American TV actor Peter Horton, who'd later become famous for his lengthy role on the TV show 30-something, but he'd appeared sporadically over the years in stuff like Dallas and CSI New York. In recent years, he's turned to producing and directing in multiple avenues of American television. Linda Hamilton played Vicky in one of her earliest roles in film. This was before she got her major break when she was cast as Sarah Connor in The Terminator, which came out later that same year. She'd reprised the role in 1991's Terminator 2 Judgment Day, where she really blossomed into a strong, tough female character, of which we're becoming increasingly blessed with today, what with all the Marvel properties and stuff being released. She also cropped up in the disaster movie Dante's Peak. She was in Skeletons in the Closet. She had a small voice role in Terminator Salvation. And she's got an appearance in the upcoming Terminator reboot as well, which doesn't actually have a title yet. R.G. Armstrong played the role of the old mechanic, and he was an old veteran of American TV shows of the 60s and the 70s. He's made small but quite notable appearances in various bits and bobs throughout the years, like the video nasty film Evil Speak, 1975's Race with the Devil, the 70s TV version of The Time Machine, Predator, he was the general in the beginning of that film, and even 1990's Dick Tracy. The rather memorable and suitably cheesy Isaac was played by a 24-year-old actor, John Franklin, who'd crop up as the voice of the normal Chucky in 1988's Child's Play. He was also the role of Cousin It in the Two Adams Family films, and he'd reprise his role of Isaac in Children of the Corn 666, Isaac's Return. The menacing Malachi was played by Courtney Gaines, whose career has blossomed since, really, with appearances in Back to the Future, Joe Dante's The Burbs, 1997's Behind Enemy Lines, Sweet Home Alabama, the remake of Halloween from Rob Zombie, and he even had a voice role in Rockstar's 2011 game, L.A. Noir. Robbie Keeger, who played Job, reappeared in 1987's The Monster Squad, whilst Anne-Marie McAvoy, who played Sarah, appeared in the TV show Full House, along with its 2016 reboot, Fuller House. 
Rachel was played by young actress Julie Maddalena, who's forged a solid career in voice acting for various English dubs of Japanese anime and shows, as well as video games too. Finally, Amos was played by John Philbin, who also starred in Return of the Living Dead and Point Break. Director Fritz Kirsch was a Texan director who debuted with this child cult horror picture. His career didn't exactly fly off the handle as I'd expected, but he did turn out another handful of memorable projects, like 1987's Gore and 2006's The Hunt. As mentioned before, the script was based on the short story by Stephen King, who'd written a screenplay of his own for the film. It underwent rewrites, though, by George Goldsmith, who later went on to work on Hill Street Blues. Producer Donald P. Borchers went on to work on 1984's Crimes of Passion, which starred Kathleen Turner and Anthony Perkins. He also worked on the much-maligned sequel to Highlander, 1994's Leprechaun 2, and he also worked on the remake of Children of the Corn in 2009. He also worked in miscellaneous capacities on John Carpenter's The Fog, The Howling, and also Escape from New York. The composer, Jonathan Elias, has contributed to many projects over the years with his music talents, such as Leprechaun 2, Vamp, the remake of Children of the Corn, Nine and a Half Weeks, Watchmen, and Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. The cinematography was done by Brazilian guy João Fernandes, who'd worked on various video nasties like Human Experiments, The Nesting, and Rosemary's Killer, which is also known as The Prowler. But he also worked on other horror pictures like Blood Rage and Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter. Editing on the picture was done by Harry Karamidas, who worked on the Back to the Future trilogy, as well as Homeward Bound, Judge Dredd, and the video nasty Massacre Mansion, which is also known as Mansion of the Doomed. Wayne Beauchamp is credited as doing the special effects, from such flicks as Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and the sequels of Phantasm and The Exorcist. Lastly, there was Susan Gelb, who worked as an assistant or second unit director on the film, She'd worked in various capacities on other projects like Crimes of Passion, The Howling, and its sequel, Howling 4. The film was quite successful on its initial cinematic run in America, grossing around $14 million altogether on an $800,000 budget. It received relatively average reviews though, but it's since become a bit of a classic in its field. It was released in UK cinemas too, with some pre-cuts in early 1984, but, and it had quite a quick VHS release in the UK, too, from Thorny M.I., right in the middle of the moral panic. It would also prove to be a rather controversial release, too, so brace yourself. Thorny M.I., of course, were infamously in trouble for releasing the uncut version of The Burning, and also a version of Suspiria on the market. Presumably due to this increased vigilance from the police... Their release of Children of the Corn was mentioned in the trade magazine Video Business, with several dealers making statements as that they were reluctant to stock the title out of fear of being prosecuted. Almost inexplicably afterwards, the title found itself listed unofficially for seizure by Hampshire's chief constable, with dealers on the Isle of Wight in particular being raided for copies of the films. After netting the film, the police went all quiet on the distributors for several months, until finally relinquishing copies of the film back to the distributor, with a statement from the Director of Public Prosecutions admitting that the print used was even more pre-cut than the approved BBFC cinematic version. It was then removed from the police's unofficial list, and the debacle was forgotten. So, there you have it. This one was actually considered nasty enough to be seized, at least unofficially anyway. 
It had a legitimate re-release from Warner Brothers on VHS in 1986, this time passing uncut, and it has remained in this fashion up until the present day, with releases from both Arrow Video and 88 Films on Blu-ray for us fans to revel in. So, that was our first film, Children of the Corn. Let's leave it to burn in the not-too-distant past, and get on with the next child chiller, Beware Children at Play. child is pursued through the woods by his father, playing a silly game. When the kid says he's hungry, the pair go fishing and settle down for camping at night. They continue their game the next day, only for the father to step on a bear trap. Unable to get his foot out, the father tells his son to make his way back to the campsite to get provisions. After being alone for three days, he begins to go slowly insane as his wound festers with maggots, and he calls for his son to cannibalise his body to save them both from demons. After he dies, his son cuts open his abdomen and devours his innards. Ten years later, the DeWolf family, consisting of John, Julia and daughter Cara, travel to Tromaville to see a family, the Cars, nearly running a little boy over who runs across the woodland roads. Encountering a salesman called Franklin, he describes some of the folklore of the area, who take excerpts of the Bible as gospel and they also believe in demons. He explains that since, there's been mysterious disappearances in the small town, mostly consisting of children with a few adults. They arrive at the Carr family's house, reuniting with the sheriff, Ross, his wife, Cleo, and daughter, Mary Rose. Meanwhile, Franklin's car breaks down yet again, and he spots someone walking in the woods. Trying to catch up with the man, Franklin is then killed by someone with a scythe, who slices him cleanly in two. Ross explains that his first daughter Amy was the first child to go missing, while Mary Rose tells Kara that there are creatures in the woods called Woodies, of which she believes Amy has become one. John decides to help Dr Fish and Ross to solve the mystery of the kid's disappearance, going to see one of the child's fathers called Isaac, who claims to have spotted his son once after his disappearance. Whilst there, John notices Franklin's car and tells Ross that something is definitely going on, Whilst at the car home, Julie and Cleo are shocked when Mary Rose suddenly disappears with someone who Cara describes as one of the Woodies. At Isaac's house, his wife Mary thinks that she can hear their son outside and screams after going outside, while the police employ a psychic called Alice to help with the investigation. When she examines Mary Rose's doll, her door is knocked upon, only for Mary Rose herself to answer and take back her doll. Following her, Alice then encounters all of the missing children, who attack her before slitting her throat and cannibalising the body. A couple nearby hear Alice's screams and discover her body being eaten by the kids. 
Ross and John arrive on the scene confused by the strange details of the murder, whilst being antagonised by a female reporter called Hawthorne. She goes over to Isaac's house to speak to him and finds Mary's mutilated corpse out in the fields, and when she runs away, the kids impale her on a spike trap. Julie figures out that the kids' chanting resembled the Anglo-Saxon alliteration from the tale of Beowulf, in which he fought a cannibalistic monster called Grendel. After John leaves, Julie checks on her daughter and returns downstairs with a fatal wound on her back. Cleo notices this and runs upstairs to check on Kara, only to spot all of the children in her room, who then jump on her and attack her whilst kidnapping Kara. John and Ross discover that the man from the opening was a Professor Randall, who had a major in Anglo-Saxon literature, who could have been the only one who taught the children how to speak it, but he disappeared on a camping trip with his son Glenn. John then realises that his son Glenn, Randall, sounds the same as the word Grendel. Back at Cleo's house, the kids are attacking her and flee, while Cleo gets a baseball bat, only to be knocked out then by a grown-up who's with the children. Isaac rallies the townspeople and drives them into a religious zeal against the kids, whilst the kids themselves, led by a now-grown-up Glenn, take Cleo and confine her to a tent. While her hands are tied and her mouth is gagged, she tries to flee but is caught by the kids, causing Glenn to tear her dress off and rape her. John and Ross turns up at Isaac's house to talk to him, but he doesn't appear to be home. While John waits for him in a hammock, he's attacked by the kids and hides in a barn while the townspeople get ever irritated by Ross's lack of response on the crimes. John is pursued further by the kids, and then he spots Amy and tries to get through to her. She's completely brainwashed, however, believing herself to be called Wheelthow. Ross arrives and is ambushed by the kids, while John trusses Amy and takes her away with him, intending to show the police. Instead of that, the townspeople are already whipped into a murderous frenzy and are intent on slaughtering the children as they believe them now to be demons. Heading to where the kids are camping, John and Amy come across Glenn removing Cleo's heart in a ritual, with John starting a fight with him and knocking him out. He recovers Kara from the group just as the townspeople arrive, led by Isaac, who asks God for help to purify the children. When John decries their intentions as religious claptrap, Isaac shoots him in the head, before instigating a full-on slaughter against the kids, shooting, slicing, and impaling all of them until the campsite is a bloodbath. Kara is the only sole survivor, who emits an inhuman growl as she stalks a nearby rabbit for food. John, what that young couple heard, don't you have any idea what it means? No, it's... They kept repeating four main words. Tear, bite, gulp, and gobble. Like some kind of savage ritual. Sounds like Beowulf. What? Sounds like Beowulf. You remember, John, the Anglo-Saxon epic? Anglo-what? Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon was the language that preceded English. Beowulf was the story of a Viking hero who roamed the country conquering monsters. When John said gulp and gobble, it reminded me of Anglo-Saxon alliteration. Successions of the same initial sound. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Julie may have something there, Ross. Did, what was it that farmer Brown said? Here. Giants and goblins who battle with God. See that succession of G sounds. Goblins, God, gulp, gobble. Typical Anglo-Saxon poetry. But that doesn't make sense. Why would children run around eating people and then quoting angel accent poetry? Where would they have learned it? 
Anglo-Saxon. And that sounds like Beowulf. I think you'll find those lines in a story about a monster named Grendel. But why Grendel? Grendel was a cannibal. Let's get to the office. Maybe the files? I'll call Dr. Fish and have him meet us over there. Oh, well, Julie, lock the door after us. And don't let in anyone who speaks in alliteration. <laughs> well, this is a very different style of film to the one we've already covered. It's a trauma picture, which probably already gives some sort of idea, in terms of quality, what to expect from this film. In essence, though, it's not too dissimilar from the plot of Children of the Corn. It just takes a vastly different and much more exploitative tone. Coming from the infamous trauma, though, what really did you expect? The film is daft, and pretty inept while it's at it as well. It's also quite a dual-natured film, as it clashes so many wrongs with so many rights. Themes horribly clang together, yet they leave a harmonious resonance in their midst. And for all the terribleness, there's glints of genius too. Let's start with the film's premise, which essentially has a bit of a mad professor type getting himself hurt in the woods along with his son, who then cannibalises his dad's corpse and subsequently kidnaps other kids to join him in a cannibalistic cult. They randomly dispatch and devour any adults in sight until they eventually meet their match at the hands of an equally loony, religiously fraught gaggle of townsfolk. It's pretty silly, it's hokey, badly filmed, and almost everything else you can think of. Yet, it's surprisingly imaginative in its writing, enthusiastic in its gore and splatter, and positively brazen and daring for breaking one of the biggest taboos in filmmaking. The characters in the film, though, are little more than drivers of ideas. They don't really have definitive personalities to speak of, just little oddities to differentiate them. John is our token protagonist, but in a very generic sense. I mean, he spouts enough one-liners and expected concern for the missing kids and his family to classify as the main hero, shall we say. His profession of writer is one of the only things that distinguishes him from the crowd, and there's a massively inordinate amount of time spent in the film criticising his profession, simply because the cover art of his books, who's presumably done by someone else, is too lurid and disgusting. Maybe it was different back in the 80s, but that sort of sentiment today seems a bit ludicrous. Not only that, but John wouldn't even be responsible for the cover artwork of a published book, so why is it his fault? Almost all of the other characters are rather generic and cut out, even the villain Glenn, who barely says a word in the entire film. The only instance which reaches beyond the pale of the generic villain is his act of raping Cleo, which is quite off-kilter and quite mean-spirited compared to what we'd see so far. His motivation and objectives are revealed only through the main character's postulating, in a way that Christopher Nolan will probably bend over for. The psychic is probably one of the only other standout characters, simply because she seems to simultaneously pull off being completely wooden and stilted in her delivery, but manages to somehow achieve some dottiness and eccentricity through her motions. It's really quite bizarre to see. Plus, her death is pretty humorous as she fails to grasp the notion that the kids are murderous until they pretty much have a knife to her throat. The kids themselves are also quite cheesy, but also non-threatening, save for their quite incidental habit of killing and eating folks around the area. The kids as a credible threat is really not established properly in the film, so so much so that the finale in which the villagers get their own back on the kids feels like major overkill. I mean, it would be anyway, even if the kids were more malevolent, but more on the ending in a bit. 
Considering how flat the characters are in the film, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the dialogue too is just as terrible, equally as cringy, and as woodenly delivered as the next Z-grade cinematic excrement. But in a way, the dialogue is pretty bad, but by golly is it ever imaginative and wacky, rather than boring or arbitrary. Some of the one-liners in the film are absolutely hilarious and sometimes quite witty, and the whole storyline of Anglo-Saxon alliteration and linking it to the tale of Beowulf is generally surprising as well as refreshingly original. I mean, the reveal of Glenn Randall evoking the character of Grendel is a little bit like the painful reveal of Nilbog being goblin spelt backwards from Troll 2, but it's nowhere near as face-palmingly awkward. The figure of Grendel as an antagonist is obviously also not too unique, as the Predator from the eponymous film is also somewhat based on Grendel, a kind of humanoid figure who moves in under the cover of shadows, almost invisible and with a fierce temperament and invulnerability to conventional weapons. His nemesis, the hero Beowulf, defeats him by using no weapons, and when successful, he decapitates the creature and keeps his head as a trophy, which is pretty much like the film Predator. Beware Children at Play, though, makes no such comparison to the Grendel character, merely with Glenn thinking that he has the invulnerability and the fierce temperament to be his match. In his death scene, for example, there's no, like, sort of reminiscent tearing off of the arms or the decapitation like that's actually in the poem of Beowulf, so this connection seems to be just an excuse for our characters to guess on about. Still, a very interesting, if somewhat stupid, plot regardless. Probably the most memorable element of the film, though, is the violence. For most of the film, the violence is pretty strong, but quite infrequent at the same time. But we do get some devouring of innards, there's a scythe bisecting someone at the waist, a throat slitting, a head stabbing, lots of bloody aftermaths, stuff like that. It's done in quite a jocular fun fashion, too, that it never feels super offensive or grim. The final five minutes of the film, though, proceed to break one of the most sacred taboos in filmmaking by literally having the overall adults slaughtering their children in a bloody rampage. Most of it is quite silly horsing around with blank rounds and fake stabbings, but you occasionally get something quite visceral, like a head being blown off with a revolver, a kid having a garden fork rammed through their throat, a boy's neck being broken with a steel block... And in one of the most uncomfortable moments, a little boy having a gun forced into his mouth and his brains blown out. This last one in particular is disturbing for quite a lot of reasons. Not only is because the image is so cruel, but having a gun forced in your mouth is a particularly nasty violation of someone, even for an adult. Still, there's clearly no real malice with such a silly film and premise, though the filmmakers were clearly trying to offend as many people as possible with this final sequence. In fact, when the film's trailer was shown at Cannes before an exhibition of Tromeo and Juliet, half of the audience walked out in protest. Still, with Cannes, though, what's new? It seems that every year there's controversy, seemingly for the fun of it. Probably because of this sequence, though, the film does remain one of Troma's more controversial titles, and it probably will be memorable for many years to come. Another slight bit of trivia, though, is the sound of the wild dogs at the beginning. which is used in the PlayStation classic Resident Evil when you're outside wandering around with zombified dogs. It just brought back a flood of memories for me as I'm quite a big fan of that franchise. 
all in all, the film certainly doesn't win prizes for quality, but there's definitely a medal for being so gutsy, risky, and downright demented. Michael Robertson, who played the main man John, didn't really do much other things appearance-wise, but he did turn to producing in the mid-noughties on stuff like The Reef, Road Train, and 2015's The Pack. His wife Julia was played by Laurie Romero, who appeared sporadically in things like Days of Our Lives to Z movies like Zombies Visit Santa. Isaac's wife Mary is played by Susan Chandler, whose only other credit of note is that she worked on the Mrs. Brown's Boys movie as a production coordinator, whilst Isaac himself was played by the director Mick Cribbin. Hawthorne, the journalist, was played by Lauren Cloud, who worked as an assistant director on films from the 90s, like Maniac Cop 2 and The Golem. Amy was played by Laura Courtney, whose only other memorable role is in another trauma production, The Toxic Avenger Part 2. And lastly, Dr. Fish was played by Rick Bitzelberger, who, apart from producing loads of penthouse straight-to-video releases, he also writes Christmas TV movies in most recent years. Director, editor and cinematographer Mick Cribbin is a real mixed bag of sorts, working in almost every capacity in different productions. Beware Children at Play is his only directorial credit, but he made an on-screen appearance in the video nasty Nightmares in a Damaged Brain, as well as a unit manager and a sound mixer. He was also a unit manager in The Deadly Spawn, he worked as a cameraman on Squirm, Annie, Wall Street, and also The Eyes of Laura Mars. And finally, he worked as a sound technician on Robot Holocaust, which we've covered before, and 2002's Spider-Man. The music in the film was composed by Herschel Dwellingham, who was actually a rather successful musician who arranged songs for Hawaii Five-O, All the King's Men, Piranha 3D, and even 2015's Daddy's Home. The film's special effects were done by quite a few people, but only two of them had recurring roles in the genre. First there was Mark Dolson, who'd also worked on Captives, Alligator Eyes, and the two video violence films. And then there was Mark Quietek, who worked on both video violence films along with his fellow makeup artist. Finally, there was David Bohem, who worked as an assistant director on the film. He also worked as a camera operator on stuff like Stigma and Hester Street. All of the other crew members, though, basically only did this film in their entire movie-making careers, so this film was quite an obscure outing on almost every front, really. It did have some alternative titles, like Goblins in the US, strangely enough, or Beware Children in France, but universally, the film never saw theatrical release. Something low-budget though this probably would never have had a chance, so it was a straight-to-video release for Troma. Arriving in 1989 too, the Nasties Panic had gone Arctic cold by the time this was on the scene, so there was equally no chance of this ever being considered as a nasty. But it also doesn't seem to have materialised in any form in the UK, with only a single VHS release cropping up in America in the late 80s. It is available either on Region 1 DVD for anyone who wants to import it, or it's available for free on Amazon Prime for anyone who has access to Amazon Prime Video, along with loads of other of the Troma releases.
So, that was Beware Children of Play, and it's the last of our episodes for a while. At least officially, anyway. There's no new main episode out until October 12th, when we're sort of spiritually carrying on our pint-sized slasher theme with a new episode on Small Killers. We'll be covering Ratman as well as Basket Case, so do tune in for them when we come back. But tomorrow we've also got a mini-sode out on the 50s B-movie, Them, so do look forward to that as well. Until then, look after yourselves and each other. (laughs) Sound a bit like Bob Ross. But I'll speak to you all again very, very soon. Ta-ta!